You're listening to Asbury University's Chapel Podcast, recorded live from our campus in Wilmore, Kentucky. Asbury's Chapel Service hosts speakers from around the world to inspire academic excellence and spiritual vitality. We hope you enjoy today's message. Good morning, Asbury. Welcome to Friday. You have officially made it to the last class day of the week. Congratulations. So we are concluding our spring uh, chapel series with the fourth frame, the fourth chapel frame. Here's the quick review. Four signs of a real Christian or a serious Christian. The first is heart holiness. It's the Holy Spirit's role in your life is to make you holy. The second is the mind of Christ. The world needs people who ask big questions. And uh, faith and reason really can and do coexist together. Third, hands of service. They come from a compassionate heart. Falling in love with Jesus leads you to loving what he loves and caring what he cares about. Our final frame this morning is the fourth sign of a real Christian is kingdom community. Uh, That is what we're about together. So Prof. Rob Lim started as a faculty member in January of 2023. I want you to think about that for a second. Uh, It's like in February we invited 50,000 of our closest friends to welcome Prof. Lim to be at a faculty. He is Assistant Professor of Business and Director of Strategic Initiatives and Partnerships in the Howard Dayton School of Business. Born in Sydney, Australia, Rob uh, was formerly a leader in international banking and has spent time as an Australian preacher. He's married uh, to Ruth. They have four sons, Jared and Noah, and their twins, Jude and Benji. Uh, Prof Lim loves Hiccup Cortados and watching Bluey with his kids. So let's give it up for Prof Lim. Can you guys hear me? Now, I'm a little bit homesick this morning, all right? You've got to help me out here. When I say good day, you have to say good day back to me. By the way, I'm Prof Rob, if I haven't met you yet. <laughs> Rob, not Rab, okay? <laughs> all right. Good day. <sighs> you guys haven't been watching Bluey. <laughs> Come on, that's, that's not a good day. Good day. <laughs> that's the way, okay? So, look, I miss Australia. I'm pretty homesick. Hiccup does a good job. They make my Australian coffee for me, all right? But one thing that I miss the most is this thing called a sausage sizzle. Has anyone heard of that before? Ollie? Come on, mate. Seriously. (laughs) He's forgotten. A sausage sizzle. It's not a hot dog. It's a sausage sizzle. I've got a picture for you. Let's get it up there. Sausage sizzle. What is it? Okay, what I want you to do, you love your barbecue in America, right? Imagine a grill. You call it grill here, I call it a barbie. Imagine a barbie, and you've got sausages on it. Not franks, okay? Sausages. And then you've got stacks of onion on it. And then what you do is it's sizzling away, right? And then you grab a slice of bread, you whack on a massive generous serve of butter on it, you get the sausage, or the snag, as we call it, snag Ollie. Snag, he's forgotten. I need to teach him all the time. (laughs) Get a snag, you put it diagonal. Not straight, diagonal to the bread. 
you fold it, chuck some onion on the top, and then you put this thing on that's not ketchup called tomato sauce, okay? We actually call it by what it's made of. <laughs> tomato sauce. And then you bite. Mate, it's heaven. I'm telling you. <laughs> Calling out to the diner. Sausage sizzle. Let's go. But you know what? It's not simply the food, the sausage sizzle that I miss. It's also the, the community aspect. You, you're probably wondering, why does Rob say mate all the time? Because there's stacks of mateship in Australia. So when I'm having my sausage sizzle and it's just going all over my shirt, the tomato sauce and everything, I'm whacking into it. And then, then people just come along. And we just make room at the barbie. We make room for people to share in this sausage sizzle. Okay, maybe I should do one here. What do you reckon? I should do one here, eh? Yeah? Sausage sizzle, tomato sauce. Okay. And it's this concept of making room, okay, that I want to explore this morning. Throughout the past few chapels, as we've seen, we've journeyed through. We've had Sarah, we've had Jeannie, we've had Brian, we've had Zaki, and then we've got to this part here where we're talking about, yeah, you're going, why is he calling him Zaki? We nickname everyone, okay? <laughs> Journey through this series called The Story We Find Ourselves In. Now, can we go to the slide that I had of the story? Wow, look at that two-letter word there. The story we find ourselves in. We, it's not an I. We. And it's so easy to forget that we, collectively, not just even us here, but everyone around the world, we are a kingdom-orientated peoples, plural. Not just one person. Not just that bloke over there. Not just Asbury. Not just Greg. Not just me. But a whole nation of believers, past, present, and future, all right? Yet our instinct, right, is to be self-centered. We always want to think about us. So I obsess about my contribution. I obsess about my vocation, my holiness, my salvation, right? It's all about me. Yet Jesus' parting words to his followers was about this thing called a kingdom community. Notice he says, love for God and neighbor. You see, the story you find yourself in is not simply about you. It is about us. Us making room for one another in the kingdom to see, serve, and love one another. To be clear, look, I don't want to belittle it, but Jesus' work does affect us personally. It does. But its effect is part of something much bigger, much grander, much more social, much more communal. It's the kingdom of God, his kingdom where he is the king. As this bloke John Wesley once said, there is no religion that is not social, no holiness that is not social. But... Before we delve into what making room looks like in the kingdom, let's look at some pretty good common distortions that I'm pretty sure we're all familiar with. Let me introduce you to my family. See the Sydney Harbour Bridge there? You guys weren't born yet, but then I tell them, they go, where's that? I go, Sydney, Australia. What's Sydney, Australia? Oh, where they found Nemo. Oh, okay, I know where that is. <laughs> so they found Nemo on that side, just behind the tree, all right? 
So that was, there's me, there's my lovely wife, Ruth, my bride, and my four lads, right? We've got, oh, look at that, there's another picture here. Brilliant, okay? My big boy, Jared, my, my second one, Noah, and then twins. Any twins here? I know there are some twins. Yeah, twins? With twins, there's always one cheeky one and one good one, right? Am I right? Uh, those two little ones there, which one's the cheeky one? It's pretty obvious, eh? Here he comes, Benji. No, he's not coming in. The end of chapel if that happens. But if there's one thing that twins learn about very quickly, right? You can hear me out here, twins, is they learn about this thing called sharing. <laughs> yeah? Sharing is caring. Yeah? Let me tell you a story. Let's get it up here. Next slide with a picture of us when I brought him to have ice cream. What kid does not like ice cream, right? Now, when you bring the kid up and you say, mate, what do you want to have? They always pick the stuff with the most color in it. I don't know why. The blue one, the red one. They don't want anything that is just like plain vanilla or chocolate. It's always like crazy colors. So Benji goes up, picks his flavor, right? And then Jude picks his flavor. And then they're sitting there. They're just about to bite it. They're so excited. Benji tucks into it, takes a bite. And man, he looks disappointed. It's like, mate, I'm sorry, buddy. You picked it. (laughs) Then he looks at Jude, and Jude's happily munching away, he's gobbling away, stuff going everywhere. And then Benji, but you know what? Benji's got a tactic. He's learned about this thing called sharing. So he looks up, kind of, you know, cunning, looks at Jude. He's thinking, mate, if I share with him, let's see what happens. Then he says, Benji, share with Jude. Jude looks up. He's just knocking off his ice cream. He goes, mate, all right, let's go. So he takes a bite out of Benji's ice cream and then goes back to eating his ice cream. And Benji's just looking at him like, supposed to do something, mate. <laughs> Jude's just smashing it back. Benji's like getting angry. I'm like, mate, you shared, shared it with him. He's not, Jude just doesn't care. Then Benji gets into rage mode. <laughs> And then he goes, Benji, share with Jude. Jude, share with Benji. It's like chucking a tantrum, chucking ice cream everywhere. It is crazy, right? And you know what? Even though he's doing that, we can see through his strategy, can't we? Because we do it sometimes. That's not sharing. In Australia, I think you say it here, we call that buttering someone up. The first distortion. We pretend to be nice on the outside. We butter them up. It looks like we have good intent. And then we bang, surprise attack them. Yeah? We surprise attack them. Why? Because we expect something in return. And whilst this is an example of a five-year-old kid, I'm sure we can all confess and find examples in our own life where we still do this. You know what? It's so prevalent in all communities. I do it. This common distortion of making room for others. We make room with an expectation that we'll be given something in return. In my class, I call it utilitarian. Yeah, you hear me? God, faith class. Utilitarian kindness. A social transaction. Before I became a prof, I was in the banking industry. And one term that I quickly became acquainted with, you might see it when you go out and work, is this thing called social capital And what it means, my boss told me, to build social capital with as many networks as I can. And you're thinking, why? To benefit from it, for use value, for reciprocity. 
And unfortunately, this very economic view of relationships is pretty prevalent, even in the church. Our connections are means to an end. Economics, supply and demand. A relationship, I supply the relationship and I demand something in return. In fact, we even try to make a profit out of it. If I serve a bit, I'll serve people that can give me more. We commoditize our relationships. You know what I'm talking about? Another distortion is we make room for others to feed our ego. Two reasons for this. First one, we may make room for others to validate ourselves. Don't get me wrong, validation's needed to honor, to encourage, to acknowledge one another. In 1 Thessalonians 5.11, we are told to encourage one another and build each other up. It's vital to our faith, yet when we excessively feed off validation for our own selfish desires, it is harmful. Lou Priolo describes it, check this out, as an excessive love of praise that tempts you to believe others' opinion of yourself over God's opinion. Ouch. In other words, making room and serving, air quotes, is akin to like fishing, right? Our service is like bait, a worm, hoping that it helps to lure in and catch some tasty validation which we can feast off. In fact, we love the taste so much that we go for the all-you-can-eat buffet version of it, fattening ourselves on food that never can satisfy because we don't want the food that truly can satisfy, the bread of heaven. Another reason, second, is we may want to make room for others because of this thing called the holier-than-thou mentality. I want to be seen and be serving so that people think I am holy. Yet by doing this, you're simply serving up pride, right? that is disguised to look good. In Australia, we have this cultural saying, it's called tall poppy syndrome. Say tall poppy syndrome. You don't, you don't sound Aussie, come on. <laughs> tall poppy syndrome. And what it means is when you see someone demonstrating, right, any kind of success, your job is to cut them down, cut down the tall poppy. Why? Because down under, we don't like arrogance or show off behavior. But you know what, what this actually breeds is false humility. Since us Aussies then think that we need to tear down anyone with any perceived success and label it as pride, you know why? Because it makes me feel humble. I'm on the good side, right? That's why I do it. It validates me. And this is false humility. This same concept carries over to when we make room and when we serve others, we serve to make ourselves look good, to climb the holy hierarchy, to do things that benefit ourselves and fan our ego. Do you know what I'm talking about? Another common distortion of making room is when we serve others for symbolic purposes only. We see and feel the need to make room for someone, to serve someone. It's kind of, sort of compassion, but it's not deep. Remember, Zach talked on Wednesday about, I'm not going to try to say it, the word compassion, like in your gut. Well, it's not in your gut. It's a shallow version. It's inauthentic. Prioritizes your own conveniences rather than the other person's need. 
It's an altruistic act at best. When I came to the USA, um, I love going shopping because at the grocery store, everything's kind of different. We call cilantro coriander. Took me like one hour to find coriander. (laughs) Man. But anyway, last night I was at Kroger and I was checking out your egg section. Eggs everywhere. Cage-free eggs, you know, you got pasture-raised, free-range, organic. You got even eggs labelled like batteries, double-A egg, A egg, B egg. You got eggs with no shells on it already for those protein-stacked people. You got eggs, not even with a yolk, mate. <laughs> got all kinds of eggs. And sometimes I wonder, do the companies that do this, are they simply doing it to make us feel ethically right? Maybe yes, maybe no. Do they legitimately have animal welfare interests or is it tokenism? to look good, so we buy their produce. I'm going to look myself in the mirror here as a consumer. Do I buy the eggs? Do you buy the eggs? Because we are somewhat concerned with animal welfare. Maybe a little bit. But really, I buy it when it's on special. Tokenism. Let's extend this to making room for others. Do I only make room, serve others when it is convenient, when it meets my schedule, when it meets my availability, when it meets my comfort level, my standard? And all these distortions of making room for others, buttering people up, ego-feeding tokenism, it kind of looks like kingdom community, but it isn't. Partly why I am familiar with these distortions is back when I was in the banking industry, mate, I love this stuff. Fan the flame of ego, let's go, tokenism, get stuff to advance career, idolize status, hunger for power, using relationships to feed my ego, knee deep in tokenism. The Lord had to redeem me from that. But what does the Lord say is the right way to pursue kingdom community? Let's turn to the word. In Luke 14, boom. Here we get a picture from Jesus on what making room should look like. Let me set the scene, right? Jesus is at this bloke's place, this reputable Pharisee fella. And he goes there, and what does he see? He sees a bunch of people buttering each other up, feeding ego, tokenism. He sees the whole lot, sees all of it. And I can imagine this in today's context, going into these networking events, people swapping business cards, doing the flex, trying to, you know, puff up the chest. Let's get attention of the most distinguished, reputable guests, avoiding chatting to people that aren't really the right guests, wanting to be seen with the right people. And what does Jesus say about this? Let's see what he says in verse 12 to 14 here. When you give a lunch or a dinner, Do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbours, because if you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. What's wrong with that? What's wrong with that, Jesus? But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. You know what? Unlike what culture tells us, Jesus paints a very different picture of a kingdom community. Jesus says, do not invite your mates, not your brothers or sisters, your relatives, or your rich neighbours. Why? Because if you do, they may invite you back and repay you. You know the word inviting back? doesn't really mean invite. 
Another way to say that is recompensate. I scratch your back, you scratch mine. Here the Lord exposes people buttering each other up. Utilitarian kindness, social transactions, social capital. And instead, he says, make room for the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. Are you nuts, Jesus? Tokenism. Okay, I'll do it tokenistically. Notice the contrast between the four groups. First, you've got your friends, the mates you enjoy hanging out with. Your brother and sister, okay, you sometimes you don't get along with, but you've got to invite them, right? Your extended family, okay, let's go. And those rich mates or those people you want, they're rich maybe in reputation or looking good and you want to hang out with them. And Jesus swaps this in crowd with an alternative for that we should make room for. The poor, those with nothing, no status, money or power. The crippled, those look down on society because they're missing limbs or the lame, those that can't walk and are dependent on people to help them or the blind, those that can't even see who's doing stuff for them so they can't even acknowledge them. Jesus tells us to make room for them. Those that cannot give us anything. In fact, let's go one step further. It will actually cost us something. Seriously, Jesus, this following you stuff going to cost us a time, energy, money, reputation, popularity, status, everything the world laps up? Hang on. So Jesus, when you say, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, this is what it looks like? A kingdom of self-giving? Regardless of what that person can give back to me? A kingdom of radical humility? No way. That lowers ourselves? not out of our own interest, but entirely for the interest of the other? Mate, it sounds mighty familiar to Philippians 2, doesn't it? Where we are charged to have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Right here during the outpouring. We heard a lot about radical humility. In fact, we lived it out as a community. It was beautiful. As we empowered and were empowered by the Spirit to make room for over 50,000 people. Some were your mates. Some were your brother and sisters. Some were your extended family. Some were the people of repute, rich, whatever. Great, good on you. You know what? There were tens of thousands that came in that were weak, that were hungry, that were thirsty, that were sick, that were not seen, that were rejected, that were the foreigner, that were the refugee, that were the sojourner. And this here was radical humility manifest. But may I remind us all that this thing called radical humility, it is not contained in an outpouring, in a revival, in Hughes Auditorium during 16 days. True radical humility is supposed to be superimposed and extended even into our daily lives. We are urged by Jesus to live as he lived to be an embodiment of radical pupility, not out of our own strength, but through Christ's strength in us. Hear this. Convenient humility is limited to those we like. 
yet radical humility extends to those Jesus loves. But it doesn't end there. Jesus in Luke 14 also makes a very important point about how we are to make room for those he loves. Did you notice the type of meal that he was dishing up here? Look at this. When you give a lunch or a dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbours. Now look at what the other part says. But when you give a banquet, hang on, not lunch or dinner, but when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Being ethnically Asian, by the way, it's Chinese New Year right now. I know some of the internationals celebrated this recently. I've had my fair share of Asian banquets. Okay? Now, if you don't know what that is, if you've never experienced one like that before, okay, all the doctors get ready because the diabetes is going to come. All right? <laughs> Imagine seated around a round table and you've got this thing in the middle called Lazy Susan. It's the best invention since sausage sizzle. Okay? It's this table that you can fling and it swings around. My twins love to jump on it and just flick them around. But anyway, the, then you've got this Lazy Susan and what happens is course after course after course of food, non-stop, relentless, food, 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 course, 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 comes out of decadent food, like insane, cholesterol-lifting, destroying, diabetes-giving food. It is insane. It is so good. The quality of it, mate, it makes General Chow get jealous, mate. Okay? General Chow's chicken's got nothing on it. It's no standard lunch or dinner. There is excess to the point that it is ridiculous. Yeah? Do I hear the people that have had that before? Am I right? It is insane. Asbury, this is what it means to make room for those that cannot repay us back with a meal, money, status, or reputation. It is not tokenism. It is not a convenient gesture. It is going out of your way to be selfless, to be generous with our time and effort to dignify another person. Ordinary humility befriends the scene. Radical humility dignifies the unseen. This is kingdom hospitality. But Jesus, why, mate? Why do we need to go to such great extent for those that are not in the in crowd? Those we would ordinarily not hang out with, those who we find not so easy to love, Lord. Why, Lord? And Jesus looks at you. with his nail-pierced hands open wide. Looks at you dead in the eye and says, because I made room for you. There was no room for you. You weren't the most lovable. But I love you. And I made room for you. Asbury Jesus made room for us in the kingdom of heaven by embodying radical humility, a total disregard for self for our sake. And you know what? He has prepared room for us at his table. 
Isaiah 25, 6, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, and the finest of wines. Can I invite the band up? Finally, for those of us here who are not in the in crowd, unseen, broken, lonely, may I remind you that you, especially you, are on Jesus' guest list. And he sees you. You know that word banquet that I said earlier? It's actually derived of a word that has a similar meaning to the term to take hold of someone, to receive, to hold. Jesus is taking your hand with his nail-pierced hands to be his guest of honour at the greatest banquet of all. So I want to do an invitation. Maybe you were here this morning and you've not surrendered the way we make room for others. You wanted to confess the way we serve people with an expectation for something in return. The way we make room for others to feed our ego with the validation of others or making room only when it is convenient, tokenism. If this is you, will you surrender this in prayer right here, right now? Maybe you're here and you want Jesus to help you to remove the boundaries you have for extending invitation to those not in the in crowd. To align your affections with his so that you may be his hands and feet truly. Maybe you're here and you're tired of serving others because it is all out of your own strength and it is a burden to try to chase this thing to look holy and you feel your intentions waning and if this is you, Will you make room for Jesus in your heart so that you may display radical humility through his strength and not your own? Giving love to those that cannot even extend anything back to you. And finally, maybe you're here as someone who really does feel unseen, unheard, not in the in crown, yet may you be reminded that you, yes, especially you, Jesus has made you a guest at his table. Ephesians 3, 16, 17, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Lord God, I just thank you for this time. Lord, we pray radical humility is not just a term, Lord God, but something we live out. Not just this thing that's said out of the outpouring that happened here last year, but may it be embodied, Lord. May, Lord, we don't want ordinary humility. Help us to embody radical humility to those that are unseen. And Lord, it is hard. Give us the strength through your crucified hands. And Lord, those of us that just feel unseen, we're going through a hard part of life. Maybe people don't know what we're going through, but Lord, remind us once more that we are your guests, that you come for us, especially for the table. Not out of anything we've done, but out of everything you've done. We love you, Lord. Amen.